Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We consider the market moves. The moves continue this morning with Tuilan Noyan of Commerce Bank and Daniel Morris, of course, of BNP Paribas uh, joining us as well. Tui, what will this do to the dollar? Do you have to reset at Commerce Bank your dollar call off what Chairman Powell said? Uh, no, actually, in fact, uh, we feel confirmed in our dollar view. Um, we have been um, expecting a weakening dollar um, um, next year, particularly as the um, Fed hiking cycle uh, would draw to an end and markets concentrate on that. And um, this is a, a common pattern that we've seen in the past with past uh, rate hike cycles. As um, the end draws near, uh, see the dollar doesn't benefit uh, from, from um, the last couple of rate hikes anymore, as the market is already foreseeing um, the peak of uh, interest rates, and actually um, the dollar starts to weaken. Um, so, uh, in fact, uh, Powell has uh, confirmed uh, our view um, in that. Very good. Dan Morris, let us look at John Authors, who channels Jeremy Grantham of GMO uh, here on the old Brontosaurus model. They served Brontosaurus at lunch yesterday as well. It was wonderful. Chairman Powell wants more room for discretion. <laughs> The stock market to a brontosaurus, well, it took a long time for information to go from the brontosaurus's head to its tail in the same way the bond market is the brontosaurus's head and the stock market just simply gets the news uh, last. Dan Morris, I mean, we see, the, 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 the again, the communication here of any given central banker and the bond market picks up with it. Do you have to reset your bond framework off what the chairman said? Uh, actually, not at all. And if anything, we're a bit concerned that the market is over-interpreting his comments. I think if we step back and look at the outlook for inflation for next year, the strength of the economy, the level of unemployment, and so on, that still suggests uh, three hikes is appropriate in our view for next year. So we may have a pause, uh, be that in March or be that in June, and that is on the margin a change from what we had thought previously. Uh, but fundamentally, we think you are going to see higher interest rates. The Fed is not going to stop raising rates. Uh, December isn't it. There's going to be more than one next year. Uh, and for now, the market is ignoring all of that. We've obviously got the big rally, but eventually uh, the realization is going to set back in about higher interest rates. And then there's a risk, of course, that all of this reverses. So, so Dan, where do you want to be invested right now to take advantage of that? Well, we are in, we're neutral on equities overall in our multi-asset portfolio, but we're still underweight fixed income. So you can't particularly be enthusiastic about equities at that point, but on a relative basis, we think they should outperform. So that's kind of our position at this point. Dan, let me kick off with you. When you look at Brexit, mm -hmm. um, is it doomsday scenario if we don't have a deal? Does it now make it more likely that we do get the deal approved in Parliament? Uh, we think of a range of options. We have a plethora, a surfeit of alternatives, I think, at this point of how it could play out. Uh, I think the forecast that we've seen is kind of the worst case assumption, which is you end up not only with no deal and a crashing out, but no kind of mitigating efforts between now and then to ameliorate what could be the effects at that point. So, you know, if that's our worst case, uh, and then we go from there towards, you know, a remain where nothing really changes, so we kind of know what the outlook is in there. But across that, there are, like I said, several options with differing economic effects. And the probabilities of those not only are shifting, but there's no one really that stands out as highly probable. Um, Lang Yun, what is being priced into your Brexit or your actually your pound forecast right now when it comes to Brexit? 
Um, I mean, we've seen that um, the options market has uh, become relatively nervous. Um, we've seen implied volatility is picking up. Um, so uh, the market is pricing in or has been pricing in a higher probability um, of a no deal. Uh, <coughs> but the levels are still nowhere near um, that we saw um, around the 2016 uh, referendum. So all in all, the market still seems relatively relaxed uh, when it comes to a no deal scenario. Um, and um, I think that is due to the fact that, um, as I uh, just heard, there are so many uh, scenarios how this Brexit could play out, uh, uh, what could happen after um, this vote in the British Parliament. Um, there are also some scenarios uh, which could play out uh, quite positively for the pound. I mean, people are talking about the second referendum, which could in the end uh, lead uh, um, to um, the, the UK uh, right. remaining in the EU even, which would be <laughs> positive for the pound. Um, so it's very difficult to, to make a pound forecast at this uh, okay, moment Drake. with all these scenarios. Um, I mean, a nicely laid out. What are we going to do? What What do you do? What? Are, where is the opportunity on pound sterling? Um, I think uh, from a risk return uh, perspective, I still think um, investors with pound exposure um, should take the opportunity to hedge um, their risks uh, in, in, in their long positions. Because as I said, um, yes, um, volatilities have picked up, but um, they're still relatively cheap. Because in a, in a no deal scenario, I would expect um, the pound uh, to depreciate at least by 10% or even more. Um, and um, the market is not yet prepared for that. So at this moment, um, you know, uh, um, buying implied volatility is actually um, um, a good risk return um, investment. All right. Uh, thank you both for joining us. Tulang Gender of Commerce Bank and Dan Morris of BNP Paribas. We begin with a man who served as the president of the European Central Bank from 2003 until 2011, living through not one but two crises in the Eurozone from Lyon, France. It is uh, Jean-Claude Trichet, and he joins us now. Jean-Claude, it's great to catch up with you. It's Good morning. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Talk to me about how difficult it is to stand somewhere like the Economic Club of New York with a load of pressure on you to say the right thing. How <laughs> difficult is that? I, I take it that it is, it is quite a challenge, of course. I think that uh, Chairman Powell did extremely well, and uh, he probably corrected what uh, had been an overinterpretation of his previous uh, uh, message on the long way from neutral uh, in uh, mentioning that it, it was closer from, uh, to, to neutral than before. Uh, I would say we have to be aware of both overinterpretation uh, but it seems to me that uh, he corrected uh, quite well my, that, what might have been yep. an overinterpretation before. And now we end up with perhaps another overinterpretation because just going through the quote at the moment, Jean-Claude Trichet reads as follows, interest rates are still accommodative, but we're gradually moving to a place where they'll be neutral, not restraining growth. We may go past neutral, but we're a long way from neutral at this point. Probably that's October 3rd. Here's November 28th. Interest rates are still low by historical standards and they remain just below the broad range of estimates of the level that would be neutral for the economy. Now, October 3rd's a judgment. November 28th is a statement of fact. I mean, we know what the broad range of neutral is. Yeah. It's 250 to 350. And as a matter of fact, we are just below that. So I'm not sure he actually made a judgment yesterday, did he? He's just stating a matter of fact. I, I think that you're right. I think that it was a matter of fact and uh, that uh, he did not intend to uh, over, I would say, communicate uh, to the market that uh, there was a change in the perception uh, on the one hand and in the, in the uh, 
likely decisions of the uh, Open Market Committee. So I, I would very much agree with you. That being said, it was very well done, in my opinion. And of course, what counts is what you do, not only what you are pre-announcing or any over-interpretation of words. And uh, we will see what happens. I have full confidence in the Open Market Committee to continue to do what is needed in the present circumstances, where obviously we have uh, the two targets of the... Uh, of the central bank are uh, very uh, are attained, if I may, yeah. in terms of uh, employment, full employment, and in terms of uh, overall uh, solid anchoring of inflation expectations in line, close to be in line with the definition of price stability, which, by the way, is the same in all four major central banks that are issuing the currencies that are in the SDR. Uh, apart from the renminbi, you know, yeah. the four others are the sterling, uh, the yen, the euro and the dollar. And all central banks have the same definition, two or close to two percent. That's very important. It's a byproduct of the crisis, in my opinion, solidly anchoring inflation expectations at a level which would be understood by everybody. So we're at this delicate part of the cycle for the United States and for the Federal Reserve as well. He's not just trying to weigh what happens with the labour market and potentially with inflation as well. He's also trying to weigh financial stability concerns. And Jean-Claude Trichet, you know, as well as anyone listening to Jerome Powell over the last year or so, again and again and again, he states that the last downturns, the last few downturns over the last few decades have been caused not by inflation overshoots, but by financial instability and financial crises. How do you set monetary policy to account for that and anchor inflation expectations too. No, that, that's a very, very important point. There is absolutely no doubt that also one of the consequences of the crisis was to put the central banks as, uh, I would say, very close to this financial stability mandate uh, without changing necessarily the mandate, but putting the central banks very close. And I have uh, been the witness myself of the setting up of the Financial Stability Oversight Council on, uh, in the US, of the European Systemic Risk Board, which I was the first uh, chairman of, uh, uh, as a consequence of the crisis. And that, that is very, very important. And I, I take it that what, uh, what Chairman Powell said on what they were doing, uh, uh, encouraging resilience in the financial system, mm -hmm. monitoring financial instability, and being transparent. And he was very transparent, obviously. I think it was, uh, it was certainly part of the responsibility of the, right. of the central bank. Do we have too much forward guidance now? Do we have enough? Or do we have to ebb it back, as clearly Mr. Powell is stating, and I would suggest you agree with, to the engineering maxim, which is data dependency. Well, first of all, uh, the various central banks are not exactly in the same situation. Agreed. As Agreed. you know, the uh, US uh, Fed is much in advance on Europe, not surprisingly, because Europe uh, in the business cycle uh, had a, a lag vis-à-vis uh, -vis the US mm -hmm. uh, because of the sovereign risk crisis. So there is a difference. So I take it that the forward guidance in Europe is absolutely necessary because we are in a situation okay. where the market participants have to know what will happen. Uh, in the US, clearly, we are less close to uh, right. absolute necessity well, of forward guidance. And it seems to me that you can understand what said Chairman right. Powell Mr. has. I've got two questions here. One of them is really important. Let me go with the weaker one first. The news flow is extraordinary with Deutsche Bank, Unicredit, the financial system of Europe. John and I every day have a mystery over the chronic nature of negative interest rates. 
You didn't study negative interest rates as a kid, and yet bankers are living with it each and every day, particularly in yeah. Germany. No, that's true. How does this? How do you perceive this ending? Well, uh, first of all, I take it that it was necessary at okay. the time, and uh, as you know, it will still be there until probably the last quarter <coughs> or the end of mm -hmm. the third quarter of uh, next year. Uh, at the very beginning, the trust was those negative rates will have devastating consequences on all the financial sphere and particularly on the banks. I would say the judgment is much more nuanced now because we saw how banks, some of them, the best uh, managed uh, banks, uh, could right. cope with it. So I would say it's, it was very, very yeah. non-conventional, obviously, uh, probably necessary. And, uh, but what about now and what about in 2020? How do you get off, as you correctly stated in a panel with Axel Weber, the addiction of all this? No, uh, it's clear that we have to get progressively, uh, I would say serenely, out of a situation which is totally non-conventional. And we are starting to do that, as you know, because, because the, the, the end of tapering is for the end of this year in Europe. Huh? Again, we have lags in comparison with the United States of America, of but the course, the course is more or less the same sequence. But Jean-Claude, there is a big question that I think we have to start exploring. The prospect that we're stuck here, that we don't get away from zero, in the Eurozone because the cycle doesn't last long enough for them to do it. You starting to think about that? Yes, yes, of course. And as I already said, of course, it's very, very important that we are refilling the overall weaponry of, I would say, not only the central banks, but also the governments and all kind of, uh, of uh, tools that can be utilized when we have to cope with the next recession. The main problem for the European would be that when the US, which is ahead in the cycle, yeah. has its recession, by contagion, we might have a big, big problem and that's a big, big for problem. us, even if it would not be appropriate in terms of uh, business cycle in Europe. So uh, we will see. But again, I take it that what is being done right now is correct, that we have in mind that you, you, you have several weaponry that were non-conventional, the interest rates, of course, and also the uh, QE or so-called QE. And we have to do that, namely normalize progressively and as I said serenely if we do not want to have counterproductive effect but I take it that all central bankers in the world are fully aware yeah. of the fact that the main main major issue for them would be the next slowing down of the cycle. For anyone just joining us on Bloomberg Radio, Jean-Claude Trichet joining Bloomberg Surveillance this morning, the former European Central Bank president. Jean-Claude talking about the next cycle I think what is really interesting when you were at the ECB the periphery started trading like credit. Sovereign debt in Italy, in Spain, has all the characteristics of a credit and not a sovereign. That's still the case. So let's explore this further. We go into the next downturn and Italy still trades like credit. How much of an issue is that going to be? Well, uh, again, Italy today is uh, more or less a paradox. On the one hand, they have, of course, a lot of liabilities, including 131% of the GDP in terms of, uh, of um, uh, I would say, uh, uh, state 
uh, over, over uh, outstanding debt. So that, that's big. On the other hand, they have a current account surplus, which is not negligible. They have a primary surplus in their budget, which is something uh, certainly appropriate uh, in the circumstances, but which is there. And uh, you know that they have, because they have a current account which is uh, behaving quite properly, they have a lot of, uh, I would say, uh, domestic uh, investment that are uh, in the overall uh, uh, indebtedness of Italy. So they are not as vulnerable as the market is very often uh, saying. I think we have to be more nuanced on, on Italy. What is clear, of course, mm -hmm. is that the new government very, uh, I would say sadly, has decided to give uh, the worst possible uh, messages to the market. But I am not desperate. It seems to me that the more, I would say, sound and reasonable messages might come now. And uh, I right. take it as important the meeting of the Prime Minister of Italy with the President of well, the Commission. You've written for decades about populism. It is finally here. We see it in each and every vote, and we see it in the struggles of Mr. Macron and the protests on the Champs-Élysées. Madame Lagarde once told me that protest is the art of France, that, that people do it there a lot. What was unusual about these recent protests, and does it speak to a fragility of Mr. Macron's plans forward? Well, first of all, I think that all the advanced economy have to cope with populism. The UK, it's clear with Brexit. The US, clear with the election of President Trump. And all continental European. Fortunately, the populism in continental Europe and in Ireland is not directed against Europe first, but against the national government first. And mm -hmm. that is something which explains also the resilience of, uh, of the European institutions and on, on the euro area in the worst crisis right. since World War II. As regards France, I would say uh, President Mac Macron engaged in very, very important reform. He was right to do so. It was really the mandate he had received from the people. Of course, that would be very, very damaging for his political capital. That's mm -hmm. unavoidable because most of the reform you have to do because they are good for the country in the medium and long run uh, have a cost, a political cost on the short run. So I'm not surprised by right. what has happened. Uh, the, what, what is uh, associated with this, uh, I would say, uh, loss of political capital, but it would, it would uh, reconquer, if I, if I may. Mm -hmm. I'm sure of that. He has time, uh, it, this political capital. But the so-called yellow jacket is something which comes out of the digital revolution, clearly, right. exactly like in the U.S., the digital revolution. It is a technology a overlay. It right. seems to me, yes, because, because they are bypassing well, all possible organizations. John and I wanted to speak to you about Chairman Powell, about the future of Europe, but there's also larger matters that we saw Paris Saint-Germain beat Liverpool. And John, what was extraordinary is Olympic Lyonnais, tied Manchester City. No one expected that. Are we going to do football? We're doing French. We've got to do football with Jean-Claude Trichet. Are you a huge supporter of Olympic Lyonnais? I, I am not really a soccer enthusiast. You so know, then you can't you, come on the show you, again. You have not the, the best interlocutor. <laughs> well, I could make mistakes in judging. Uh, the, I was surprised myself, of course, because, because Manchester uh, City... I think it's Manchester City. It is, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. had, had a, a fantastic reputation. So, but we will see. I mean, in any case, 
How does le meilleur gagne, le meilleur gagne. How does France compete in something as visible as football versus the capitalist juggernaut of the Premier League in England? <laughs> I cannot tell you. Again, I'm not again a, a, a real expert in this domain. I love, I love that we have the former president of the European Central Bank, and you are so keen to get. I, I looked up. I figured a guy from Lyon looked up to see if he was on the board of Olympic Lyonnais. He was busy running the Bank of France for the nineties, and then in the early two thousands, he had this other job to do over the ECB. Jean Claude, I want to wrap things up with a delicate story, a delicate topic, and you and I have gone back and forth on this before. And you're a good sport when we talk about it. The rate hikes of two thousand and eight and two thousand and eleven at the ECB. A lot of people look back and say that was a policy error. Walk me through how difficult it is to know whether you are indeed making a policy error or not, and how fine the decision actually is that you make. Well, uh, to to replace myself in the circumstances, I would say that what was extremely important for me was to be able, in any case, to engage in very bold and swift, non-conventional measures, as where I did with my colleagues in O seven. 9 of August 07, we gave illimited supply of liquidity to all our banks. And they, are, they were asking for 95 billion euros. We gave 95 billion euros. It was very much criticized at the time, but it won me the uh, man of the year of the Financial Times because it was swift and bold. Swift, indeed, because we took that decision in two hours and a half. And the same, it was the same when we had both, I would say, the... Uh, uh, the private sector crisis coming from uh, from Wall Street with Lehman Brothers, where we generalized the full allotment at fixed rate of liquidity, which again was very, very bold yeah. because all the banks could ask for everything. At the same time, I had a mandate and uh, as my uh, successor and my predecessor, which was to deliver price stability, be credible in the delivery of price stability and avoid any kind of mm -hmm. doubts in major public opinion in Europe. And I, I did both, if I may. I was anchoring solidly inflation expectations at times where we had a high level of inflation. I have known 4% inflation. You know, the, the central bankers today would dream of that. We, we, on your watch, I, you enjoyed 4%. On my watch, I had 4%. When I left, I had in the year where I left, 3%, 2.7% when I left. So we were in a different universe. And again, I was uh, equally anxious to deliver price stability and be credible in that delivery, including in major public opinion that are yes. uh, very often anxious. But you the, know, the, the, ma the, main, yeah. the main fear of half of Europe was we are engaging in uh, some kind of new, I would say, experience never attempted in the past, and we will have inflation. Yeah, when you merge the DM, the, the, the Gilder, and uh, say the, the Escudo. And okay, very quickly here. Is the Bundesbank now a different Bundesbank when you were on the watch? Yes, certainly, because now they have uh, 20 years of experience with, uh, within the system, uh, the open system of central banks. So this is certainly a different uh, Bundesbank. Uh, you have also the experience, the benefit of the experience, and, uh, but, of course, uh, I see the Bundesbank, as always, keen on not losing contact with the public opinion in his own country, mm -hmm. in her own country. Mm -hmm. That being said, 
the people of Germany, and I think it's uh, paying homage to all what has been done by the ECB, yeah. is in favor of the euro at the level of 80% of the citizens in Germany, 80%. So it, 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 the success of the euro is proved in a way by the support of the people. I've got a tricky question to wrap up, just as a final one. We've got a presidential race next year at the European Central Bank. Would you endorse a candidate, Jean-Claude? Do you like anyone right now that you think would make a good ECB president? He's never coming back. No. (laughs) No, I would say that it is a decision made by the heads of state and government. I have full confidence that they will find out a very good president amongst a number of potential presidents that are extremely good. Do you think we can have a Frenchman at the top of the ECB again? I would not exclude Uh, any nationality. (laughs) Very good. Jean-Claude Touchet, thank you so much. It's great to see you, Jean-Claude. You're always fantastic, always thoughtful. Thank you. Pleasure. Have you here with a terrific news flow. Donald Gimbel with us. He's Senior Vice President of CIBC Private Wealth Market for ages at Corey with encyclopedic knowledge of Asia, among other things. I have noticed the humor recently that Australia has not had a recession since your ute. 25 years. Would you explain why a nation as sophisticated and diverse as Australia has avoided the recession pain? Maybe it's neither of those things. Maybe it is. Well, first of all, it's a small population. It's 26 million now, up from 15 when I started going there. So all of Australia Uh, is the size of New York City. Exactly, or the size of Shanghai. You know, it's it's teeny. Why they avoided recession? It's natural resource based, and the and the growth in in the PRC, the People's Republic of China, has has stimulated the Australian economy. I remember being in Australia in 2007, um, and they were very proud of the idea that the global economy was facing a bit of a downturn, but they were insulated. And there was this joke on the news at the time that this politician had used a map of the world and actually physically moved Australia closer to China. And at the time, people were laughing about it, but actually, that was actually what was happening in Australia at the time. Absolutely. And, and the long term at that time, in 2007, was that we'll, we'll ride the Chinese tail for a while, and then we'll jump on the Indian tail. And that'll keep us going for another 50 years. Uh, now, we'll see if that happens. And we'll see whether China can carry on as well. You've exactly. just been to Asia. Correct. What is the read on what is happening at the moment? Because I found over the last couple of weeks, as we anticipate this G20, that the conversation is almost formed exclusively from the perspective of the White House. What does the White House want? What will the president try and deliver? And not so much about the other side of the debate in this bilateral. What is China willing to give up? Well, they, they, you just hit the, the nail on the head. And Tom and I were talking about that briefly uh, 45 minutes ago on, on, on TV. The, the One question, of my other properties. <laughs> it's a good show. Was it okay? Yeah, it was a good show. We actually two, okay, we got yeah, 42 viewers. Well, Tom was on, so I watched <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Getting back to the point. Uh, <laughs> the, the question in Asia and in Australia is not the U.S. It's China. Where are they going? What, what is the president of China's popularity? What is he accomplishing? Is the Belt and Road actually right. working or coming undone? And, and so as we go into uh, this weekend, the, right. the, the question is, what's China going to give? 
but remembering they need to save face. Okay, this is important. I spoke to Robert Hormatz yesterday, Ambassador Hormatz, with his international experience uh, serving President Obama. We talked about Jonathan Spence, the giant of Yale University. And everybody has to read Jonathan Spence to know China. You lived it, Don Gimbel. What's the number one thing you would say to the President of the United States about the character of the Chinese elite? Uh, They're much more pragmatic. They're much more long-term orientated. They believe very much in saving face at all cost, but they know how serious this trade thing is, and they and they want to come to some agreement. And it's really not about trade and, and tariffs. It's much more about intellectual property in terms of the United States. And if if they if the president of the United States can understand that, can understand that the Chinese want to save face but they're willing to concede a bit on intellectual property and on on ownership in in the pr in the people's republic uh then we can get an agreement and i personally think we will i think the united states though has got some allies here in the likes of germany i think we obsess over the low-paid manufacturing jobs that may or may not have shifted to china the real fear for a lot of people and within the administration from the likes of secretary ross is that the made in china 2025 program is to take the highly paid high value added good production from the likes of the united states from the likes of germany and the u.s is not alone the germans are also very nervous about what 2025 might bring I, I, what the next 10 years you know will bring you've got a point but i think you're running late the an awful lot of jobs have left China and gone to Indonesia, have gone to the Philippines, have gone to Myanmar because wage rates in the PRC, People's Republic, have actually yeah. risen. So I, I think that... No, but Don, that's kind of my point, that actually what the Chinese do want are the higher paid jobs. They yeah. don't want the lower paid jobs. Well, I, I suspect that then we're going to have to figure out how to have value added in this country and the Germans are going to do have to do the same thing because that that's what the future of international trade is it's where you do it best at the at the most reasonable price is going to get the business we're going okay. all going to have to departmentalize what we do Don Gimbel, I don't know if you've read Robert Kaplan's uh, uh, on Asia cauldron going around the South China Sea of all these secondary nations and how they're all finding capitalism which of those nations interests you the most is the opportunity five in ten years out Gosh, that's a great question. Thank uh, God I finally you got, got one, You've got a couple. Now <laughs> I can go home. Had, yeah. uh, I would say that the Philippines, if they can straighten out their, their government situation. With Mr. Duterte, what does the Philippines do with Mr. Duterte? Uh, they replace him at some point. I mean, I, he's... Has he caved into the Chinese on the South China Sea in the last number of weeks? Yes, a little bit. Can the U.S. respond to that? If we could get the president of the United States to close his mouth and turn off his Twitter machine, I think we'd be a lot better okay. off. But you think the Philippines is an investment I think the Philippines looks good. I, I think that uh, South Korea, if we can get the North Korean thing under control, looks looks interesting. Uh, Taiwan is under a cloud, always has been, and probably will continue to be, but they do good, good stuff. Uh, Indonesia has an election coming up, and it's it's not looking great to me. And... Uh, and Myanmar has okay. fallen apart, and uh, Malaysia, uh, it's got a, a new old leader, 90-plus yeah. years old, uh, and it's got a lot of potential. Okay. There you go. Don, thank you so much. Don Gimbel with us with CIBC uh, Private Wealth Management with his travels through Asia and focus there on Asia. 
Pim, yes. bringing our esteemed guest, you and him are the only two people on this island that remember when you could drive across Midtown Manhattan, east to west, midday, and actually get somewhere. <laughs> yeah, probably. Although uh, Leon Cooperman uh, knows a little bit more about the ins and outs of Wall Street than I do. He is, of course, a hedge fund manager, philanthropist. Uh, he is the chairman and the chief executive of Omega Advisors. Uh, his alma mater is Hunter College, as well as Columbia University. And uh, he's known for starting the Goldman Sachs Asset Management arm. Leon Cooperman, thank you very much for being with us today. You Good morning. Have, you have uh, previously said, and I think this is great, quote, all this fixation and fear about interest rates is misplaced. Based on what we saw in stock and bond markets yesterday, can you explain to someone who's just landed from Mars how the market could increase the value of all these assets just because of a statement from the Federal Reserve chief? Well, if I could start off, I'd like to kind of make a recommendation, um, and that is a suggestion. Why don't you guys have on your program a senior person from the SEC to explain why they eliminated the uptick rule, which was instituted in the mid-1930s in response to the abuses of 1929, worked effectively for, I think, 70-odd years, and they took it out in 2008, which gave a runway to these electronic high-frequency traders, uh, um, etc., and why we have not dealt with the um, uh, all this algorithmic stuff going on, which is scaring the hell out of the public well, and, and creating a lot of volatility that... That, that, that right. is relevant. Are you suggesting, Mr. Cooperman, that we've had flash this and flash that and we need something more sustainable by the algos before we get yeah, the attention of people? So. I, would, yeah, I would say so. Now, look, I'm old-fashioned, so maybe I'm out of date. I'm willing to learn. That's why I, I suggest get somebody from the SEC to explain their position. I don't understand it. Everyone that I know of that has accumulated wealth, whether, whether it's Warren Buffett, Mary Gabelli, successful investors, Ken Langone, they buy weakness and they sell strength. And these algos, not all of them, but and right. there's one approach where they, when it's up, they, they want to buy it. When it's down, they right. want to sell it. And this exaggerates the moves. It, uh, it increases volatility in the market. It scares the public. and It is counterproductive. Well, I'll go with but, the scares the public. There's no question about that. Do you find weakness in the market right now? It, you know, within the purview of Leon Cooperman, is this a point where you can acquire shares three years out, five years out? Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, the market is the, the market for bonds is very homogeneous. If you're dealing with AAA bonds or triple B bonds, bonds of the same uh, you know rating trade within an eighth or a quarter of a point of each other. The stock market, on the other hand, is very heterogeneous. There are stocks now that are three thousand on the S and P with the index at twenty seven hundred, and there are stocks that are twenty five hundred with the index at twenty seven hundred. And my job is to find things that are being mispriced in the market. But I didn't really respond to the first question regarding interest rates, I, I, they're not an irrelevancy, but clearly interest rates are not at a level that represent a problem for the stock market. Every bear market and every recession I know has been preceded by high real interest rates. Okay, we have, if I take the, the, the Fed funds rate and address for inflation, it's zero. And if you look back in 2000, and, and, and excuse me, if you look back as early as the uh, mid-70s bear market cycle, basically, uh, 
before the 73-4 downturn, the real Fed funds rate was 600 basis points. Before the 80 uh, downturn, it was 800 basis points. Before the 90 downturn, it was about 600 basis points. And so you get a picture that there's high real interest rates. Real interest rates today are zero. You know, In the last 50 or 60-odd years, the S&P multiple has averaged 15 times. That's a, not far from where you are today. However, in the last 50 years, with the S&P multiple averaged 15 times, the 10-year government averaged about 6.5%, uh, currently uh, 3%, and the Fed funds rate averaged close to 5 currently a little over 2 So, you know, the stock market is not, uh, you know, the stock market valuation is very attractive relative to interest rates if you believe interest rates are sustainable at these levels. I think the biggest point I would make, uh, and I think it's very important for people to understand, if the 10-year government belongs at 3%, and I'm one of those guys right. who thought it would be higher, frankly. I, I thought it would be higher. But if the 10-year government belongs at 3%, and right. the funds belong at low 2%, you don't make 10 or 15% a year in the stock market. You make 5% a year in the stock yeah. market. And that's the track you're on okay. right now this year. I think we're up 4% year to date. Yeah. Leon, the hedge fund business is 2%. You make the fee. You get 20% or a big hunk of the piece over a hurdle rate. Is the formula broken? Is the formula dead? Well, it's a very complex uh, question and requires a complex answer. Uh, first, the premise you have to accept is to get a premium fee, you have to deliver premium performance. And if you can't deliver premium performance, you're not going to get a premium fee. But we've been through an unusual period. Uh, I go back to 2008. Everybody wanted, for the problems of the economy, they wanted to blame the investment banks, the commercial banks, the rating agencies, the brokerage industry, the government. Nobody wanted to blame the individual for the conduct of their financial affairs, saying that they had no responsibility to figure out what they could afford and what they can't afford. Similarly, if in 2009, I said to you, and we, we came as close to saying that as anybody, Steve Einhorn, my partner uh, who coordinates a lot of our macro research work, we were very bullish in 2009. But if I said to you, you don't want to be in an absolute return manager, you want to have your money with a relative return manager, so a hedge fund is not a good place to have your money because we're going to have a 10-year straight-up bull market, a 10-year straight-up economy, you would have had me arrested for being uh, somewhat demented. Okay, and that's what's happened. And so the individual that made a decision in 2009 that they wanted to be in a hedge fund, they were not. They were in a vehicle that was designed to be absolutely return-oriented, that uh, was not going to be fully invested, was going to carry a short book, and uh, having a short book is a, uh, a hedge against prosperity in a one-way bull market. So now the question becomes, today, uh, at uh, 20, whatever we are in the S&P, 2,700, whatever the number is, you know, nine years into a bull cycle, do you want to be in a long, lonely uh, um, product? So, you know, I, I don't complain. I don't complain. It's like Henry Ford when he got caught, you know, driving on a highway with a young chick. Uh, he said, you know, don't complain, don't explain. You know, you have to live in the world we're in. And I would say that if we continue in a straight-up bull market, uh, which I doubt, uh, basically, you, you want to be in a long-only strategy, and you don't want to be in an uh, absolute return strategy. So, you know, but the hedge fund model is unequivocally being challenged. People are tired of paying a premium fee to lag some index. Yeah. And until yeah. that changes, uh, the, well, the, the industry is going to be in a defensive mode, which had nothing yeah. to do with my decision to retire, to be honest with you. You know, my decision was 
totally based. I'm 75 years old. I've been doing this over 50 years. I'm giving my money away to charity, and uh, basically, it, it's. Yeah. Uh, there were two things I said to my investors. I wrote them a letter. I said that basically, statistically, if you make it past 65, and cancer doesn't get you, on average, you make it to 85. I hope to be better than average, but if I'm just average, I got 10 years left since I turned 75 six yeah. months ago. Well, so I don't want to spend the last 10 years of my life running after you. Let's go to this. Let's well, go to the statistical yeah, Marvel pit. Well, uh, Leon Cooperman, I, I want to ask you if you have a green thumb. Do I have a? I have a. That whole thing is built so out of proportion; it's not even funny. There's what is no going on with that whole cannabis industry? And tell uh, us your perspective. Let me you're, you're, you're asking the wrong guy. Uh, I am very friendly with a gentleman named John Kovler, who I've known for forty years. A real gentleman. He calls me up and he tells me his son is starting a cannabis company. He'd like to meet me. I meet with Ben Kavler, very impressed, very fine young man, very impressed. I put a very small sum of money in. They have a conference call, okay? And I asked a question on the conference call. The next thing I know, the New York Post has my picture in it as the <laughs> cannabis king. Right. As the cannabis king. You know, uh, it's obviously an explosively uh, growing industry, but there's going to be a lot of money you, lost Leon, in that area. It, Let it, me explain. Let me answer the question before you go on. Okay. Because of that picture in the post, okay, every new issue in this area calls me up and wants to come and visit me. And some 35-year-old kid sits in my office and explains to me his vision. And if what he tells me is accurate on paper, he's worth a half a billion to a billion dollars. I know that that doesn't make any sense. Right. There's going to be an enormous shakeout. Yes, the industry is going to grow. The nation is going to get high on this stuff. But, you know, you have to figure out who the winners and losers are. If and you, I would be very, very careful if I was the public. Liam, we got one minute left. Thank have you, you ever had a public relations team? Have, is there ever no, been a group I, that's I, had I, to control you and get you on message? I, I, uh, I'm on message. Just ask me your questions. I'll give you my questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll give you. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally on. Message. What do you do right now? I want you to know what to do with Apple Computer right now. Apple's imploded. The world's over. Not Tim involved. Cook's a failure. What do you do with Apple? Come on. I have my money in Google. I have my money. In, you know, I know a lot about what I own. I don't know a lot about what I don't own. We. You're long Google. Tell us. Give us the belief story on Google quickly. You know, you, 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 it's, the market sells at 15 times earnings. Google's at 20 times. The market's going to grow 6%. Google's going to go 20%. They're sitting on a fortress balance sheet, a highly diversified business. It's cheap relative to its growth. Uh, you look in 2000, Cisco was 100 times earnings. You know, uh, yep. <laughs> we, we're in a totally different world. Okay. So, you know, I find plenty of things to do, and I'm on message. You don't need a PR guy to control me. I respond to your questions. You ask me a question, I give you an answer. I believe that's what we got. Leon Cooperman, thank you so much for the Omega Advisors and thrilled he's with us. And uh, We're now absolutely thrilled to bring in a mayor uh, of a great accomplishment. He is a mayor of a small city on the West Coast, Los Angeles. We say good morning <laughs> to everyone at SiriusXM. Uh, listening in Los Angeles. And before we dive into all the usual questions, 2020 and the rest of it, I just want you to parse what it's like when you first nail Oscar Peterson in B-flat. Oh, there's, there's something on the piano. <laughs> Oscar Peterson in B-flat is an act of God, isn't it? It is an act of God for sure. The finest who ever played the piano, and I have a piano in my office, and uh, I can only hope to play a fraction as well of how Pim, Oscar Peterson did. This is a great idea. I could play my fractured, lousy Garcetti imitation piano here. In Let's do it. Let's I do think it. we on. could find room for that. If we had a piano right now, we could do it from Washington while we're talking. You know, well, That would work out. Pim, please. Uh, tell us a little bit about what tune 
you believe the Democrats should play <laughs> when they enter the majority in the House in January? What tune should they play? Uh, I don't know. I think that uh, probably sisters are doing it for themselves. Uh, something where we're finally stepping up and actually taking uh, agency back and standing up for a, a culture not of corruption and cruelty, but hopefully of action and getting stuff done for the American people. That's where I live as a mayor, and I'm excited to see a Congress. I met yesterday with uh, uh, Chairman DeFazio, who heads up transportation and infrastructure, and I'm hopeful we'll actually start fixing this country, and that I hope this Congress focuses on that first. When you talk about fixing the country, you're talking about infrastructure spending? Absolutely. Um, I started a group called Accelerator for America with fellow mayors that we founded, bringing together folks from industry and labor and nonprofit world to kind of say, while Washington's sleeping, we're going to kind of take America's destiny ourselves and move forward infrastructure and mm -hmm. good jobs and opportunity zones. And we just met in Philadelphia. Uh, we had a poll of a thousand voters that uh, we're going to be releasing this week. And um, after healthcare and jobs, Number three was infrastructure and having campaigned for people around the country over the last few months from Mississippi to Oklahoma to California, everywhere, obviously the Midwest, people want the roads paved. They want yeah. the bridges repaired. They want jobs and they want, you know, infrastructure to be world class again. Yeah, Mayor Garcetti of Los Angeles with us, folks, uh, coast to coast. David Wasserman over at Cook Political Report just did a stunning summary of what the House Democrats will represent in the new Congress. 79% of all Asians, 72% of all Latinos, 66% of all African Americans, 60% of all college grads, and on and on and on. And it's a great trend led by your Los Angeles of a more demographically diverse America. I want you to speak to the 25% of Republicans left in your state. How do they adapt and adjust to the new America that's been led by the diversity of California? Well, I'm not gonna give advice to the party, but you know, I have 25% of my city is registered as Republicans. That's a million people. And I would just say, you know, uh, I work for you too. Um, you know, we raised the minimum wage together because a majority of Republicans do believe in that, contrary to the uh, Republican leadership here in Washington, D.C. Um, we also lowered the city's business tax, a traditionally kind of Republican idea, but Democrats are behind that too because they want to see small businesses uh, start up and be prosperous in my city. It's, I would just tell them, put down your party affiliations. You know, If you need to duke it out election time, fine. But let's figure out a pathway forward of the things that unite us. Um, you know, We made community college free in L.A., and 40% more kids went to college the next year in our community college system from our public schools. And so I think Republicans care about that stuff. And if they want to be a party of extremism, they can turn into a permanent boutique party in California. Uh, but if they want to get together with us, we're more than happy to work together, um, you know, between elections for sure. And I think if they want any sense of ever being back in power, they've got to listen to Americans and they've got to listen to the future, uh, which is very much embodied in Los Angeles and California. Mayor Garcetti, could you speak to the issue of natural disasters that afflict not only California, but many other places around the world and are accentuated by the effects of climate change and what you believe should be done in order to preserve the current infrastructure that exists? Well, well, mayors are the political first responders to these events. Um, you can't tell Syl Sylvester Turner in Houston that climate change isn't real still re rebuilding from Harvey, um, you know, local officials in the Florida panhandle and 
most uh, you know, notably us in California uh, over the last couple of weeks with the heroic work of our firefighters and others who responded to the, these fires. I loved what Jerry Brown said. He said, this is the new abnormal. And I think it's it's real. It's one of the reasons with help from Mike Bloomberg and others, I uh, serve on the C40, the global organization of mayors confronting yeah. climate change and founded Climate Mayors, which is the American group now that I've built to 410 cities that have said, hey, if this White House is out, yeah. we're in and we're going to implement Paris where we live. You are at the absolute nexus of copyright and intellectual property in this nation. I mean, that is the perception of your Hollywood yep. and your Los Angeles. What's your advice to President Trump to actually get fixed what everyone agrees is a major issue with China? You know, I think he's saying the right things. I just don't see much of a strategy. Um, I think that it's more about the fireworks of tariffs, which have a huge impact. Those are taxes on us. And, you know, whether it's dock workers in L.A. or whether it's construction workers that are slowing down projects because of soaring steel costs, we have to have a strategy. So I think we act tough. But, you know, I've told that directly to Chinese officials. I've said, look, it's it's absolutely uh, crazy that you have a quota on movies from Hollywood right now. I said, aren't you a strong country now? I think we have to make that argument. Right. You've grown up. You are a powerful nation. If right. we're going to be uh, a relationship of equals, we have to be treated as equals, and it's a great place to start. 20 seconds. Mayor Garcetti, how many times have you seen A Star is Born? <laughs> Which one? <laughs> oh, there, there. See, that's the L.A. answer. Right there's, the, there's been four, the one right? With, with with Mr. Cooper in it. He's I haven't seen the new one. Oh, um, good. I, I've been too busy working for the people of L.A. and changing the house out. But uh, uh, I saw the Barbara Streisand one. I haven't seen the two earlier ones. So I'd say one time for between the four. Okay. But I'm looking forward to, well, you're, to you're seeing Gaga gen- and Cooper. You're, very good. I, I'm, I'm sure you will. Mayor Garcetti of Los Angeles, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.